Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Cindy Banier with Dr. Cindy Speaks. I'm a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, and our community. Running for Florida Congressional District 19, that's coastal southwest Florida, Boca Grande, all the way down to Marco Island. We are recording this podcast on August 11th at 1 p.m. It is a hot and sticky summer day in southwest Florida as it is almost the entire year. So it's really not that different than much of the other times of the year, Um, except for we still are in hurricane season here. We are in the early stages of the hurricane season. We don't have anything on the horizon now, which is great, but we are on the lookout all the way until November. So that's a part of life here in Florida. And it's one of the reasons why our water and climate change are some of the top concerns for me. We are on the forefront of climate change here. We are also at risk of flooding from both hurricanes as well as other natural disasters related to that. You know, lots of rain comes uh, along even with tropical storms, beach erosion, things like that. Sea level rise in general affects our beaches every year more and more. So these are issues that we are going to be bearing the brunt of and it's one of the reasons why I think that we need leadership out of people representing Florida on climate change. So lots of other things going on here today in our world, including um, some pretty significant foreign policy issues uh, that my special guest today will be able to speak expertly on once we get him here in studio with us. But otherwise, we are still here in Coronaville in Fort Myers. You know, we used to have Margaritaville down here in Florida, but now we have Coronaville because we just have complete and wanton disregard for science in relation to public health and pandemics. And we've just simply thrown up our hands and said, well, we have this global pandemic that has more than 5 million people who have been infected with it. And we have over 150,000 deaths in the United States, but nah, it'll be fine. Just go ahead, go to the beach, go to the restaurant, open the schools, you know, we'll get a v- vaccine or something sooner or later, right? That's what uh, Ron DeSantis and all his cronies say is, uh, you know, in lockstep with Donald Trump. And uh, the rest of us are just kind of sitting here at a loss for words where our country that used to be one of the leaders in the world in terms of preparedness for pandemics and systemic response to crises and emergency. I mean, we were really, really top of the world, frankly, in terms of that for uh, quite some time has simply just uh, abdicated, abdicated leadership and just decided that uh, we would rather not think about it. That, you know, one day, one day, the coronavirus, it's just going to be gone. Right? Right, Donald Trump? Just one day, it'll be gone like magic. Poof. Right? Um, Which is what people who live in fantasy lands say when they don't really want to take responsibility for everything. And that's exactly where we are. And the, the weird part about it is that what was done by Donald Trump and his enablers and uh, sycophants and, and corporate sponsors, they, you know, they all really just did it to, to support themselves, right. And to support the image of Donald Trump and to kind of keep the good times going as far as that goes. But the really, really weird part about it, I think is just how much it's eroded our government and our trust. I mean, on the skids when it comes to public trust and government and, This just really, you know, made it worse, frankly. And it 
it's a big problem, right? It's a big problem because trust is a pretty fundamental part of what we need in order for our government to be able to work and in order for our citizens and people who are coming into this this country to be able to trust that it's going to function. We've walked back from our global leadership as well. Like this is, and I've said this from the beginning, that this is going to go down as the biggest failure in history. We are just now starting to see how it's affecting us. We knew the economy was kind of part of it, but we're going to look back 20 years from now at this being the the quintessential moment where the U S lost its standing in the world. And I'm a hundred percent confident in that. And it's, it's horrible. And I don't think that anybody who was involved in the undoing will quite have understood what they, they did until well after. And that's, that's a terrible state of being. I think that, you know, given the fact that I've, I've about how our world works and how political systems and governments around the world work, I can kind of look down the road and say, oh yeah, this is going to be the event that everybody's going to study moving into the future as to how the U.S. lost its its place in the world. Um, and then they'll just be really baffled as how, how it was just this complete bumbled leadership that got us here. And um, I'm really disappointed in it. Another analysis that I've heard recently too is that this, I mean, and of course this is true. It's not, you know, the the handling of the coronavirus at the hands of Donald Trump is, is of course going to be the tipping point, but there was a lot of issues that were, you know, eroding away our democracy and the strength of our government for decades. Everything from systemic racism to the continued disinvestment under the, the Bannon doctrine of, of pulling out people from the structure of our government and not replacing them or just simply putting the least qualified person in place and, you know, to cacosocracy style. And um, that's led us to this place. Also, you know, disinvestments in public health and all the health disparities that we see around the country along the lines of both poverty and race bear. They were there before the pandemic, but really just, just, you know, ripped the scab off with the, you know, the bandaid under Donald Trump's leadership. So, but let's talk about some other stuff going on here. I do see our guest is in studio. Uh, Ambassador Peter Galbraith is with us, if with us, we're really, really looking forward to that conversation. I am. Yes, we can hear you. How are you? I'm I'm well. Uh, a certain mastery of the technology. Uh. Well, good. Well, appreciate that, and thank you. And I'm a new Potter podcaster. I don't know what we exactly these days, but um, just decided actually to spin up cast at the beginning of the shutdown for the pandemic because I wanted another way to connect with folks and to have a way to you know, get message out as well as to talk with amazing uh, people like yourself about issues that are really important to us. So I really appreciate you bearing with us on the newness of the technology and being here today. Well, I'm, I'm delighted. And uh, uh, it, it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, you, you get to a, a certain point in life and you need to have your kids around to change the channels on your TV. But um, I'm <laughs> sure that at least some of your constituents are familiar with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know it's always uh you know it's been accelerating to our rate of technology which is um you know it's hard for everybody to keep up with to be honest. So I don't think anybody should feel you know worried about that. You know we all we, we all fall off where we are. I I do consider myself a an elder millennial. So I um I, and that really is just because I have embraced much of the technology quicker, but there are people that are, you know, my age cohort who just simply don't or didn't want to or haven't done much of this technology stuff. And so, you know, a lot of it is also just, you know, but let's let's go ahead and talk a little bit about about you, Ambassador. Tell us a little bit, you know, you've had really, really amazing career in public service and international development and foreign service. And I, you know, I, I would not 
uh, do it justice. But if you could just tell us a little bit about that, and then we can hop into some conversations about some of the issues that we see in foreign policy today. But let's start with 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 you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Ambassador Galbraith. Well, uh, I'm uh, originally from Vermont, uh, and I even now divide my time between there and my home on Sanibel Island uh, in your uh, constituency. Right. Uh, and uh, I began my career in government in 1979 when I joined the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where I worked uh, for 14 years, uh, handling the committee's main legislation, as well as the Near East and South Asia. And uh, mm-hmm. one thing about handling the Near East and South Asia um, is there always interesting things happening. So I, I uh, mm-hmm. became very involved on Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, mm-hmm. uh, the Iran-Iraq war, and uh, then the genocide against the Kurds. Um, mm. And uh, then in 1993, uh, President Clinton asked me to be the first U.S. ambassador to Croatia, which was at, uh, at war um, uh, itself with, with uh, Serb-backed rebels in Serbia, who occupied about 30% mm-hmm. of the country. And of course, it was right next to Bosnia-Herzegovina, where a war had been raging since 1992. Um, mm-hmm. And I had the experience of participating uh, in the peace negotiations uh, in Bosnia. Uh, and I was the principal mm-hmm. peace negotiator of the peace agreement that ended the Croatia War in '95. Uh, then, uh, after a brief stint back in Washington, uh, teaching at the uh, National Defense University, uh, I went off to East Timor, where uh, I was uh, the director for constitutional, political, and electoral affairs with the UN mission that was the government of East Timor. Yeah. But I also became a cabinet minister in the um, first transitional government, handling political affairs in Timor Sea. And with that second part of my portfolio, I negotiated a treaty with Australia over the uh, uh, oil of of the control of the Timor Sea, the oil and gas, uh, Uh which um, took Timor's share of that from uh, uh, 50% to 90%, but it also eliminated a lot of the uh, benefits the companies got. So effectively, it quadrupled the GNP of uh, East Timor. And now if you followed my career from the staff of the Senate uh, to ambassador to Croatia to uh, cabinet minister in East Timor, you'll notice the trajectory is uh, one of uh, uh, ever more important jobs in ever smaller places. Uh, but that, <laughs> that trend broke uh, back at, uh, at 19, uh, sorry, in, in 2009 uh, when President Obama asked me to go be uh, the uh, Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, or he nominated me to the mm. UN uh, in Afghanistan and the deputy head of the UN mission there. Uh, that um, assignment ended abruptly uh, uh, over the question mm. of fraud in the Afghanistan presidential elections. Uh, I thought I should mm. do that something should be done about it, not the least because we were paying $300 million to hold the elections and because the elections mm-hmm. were really key to the success of the international mission in Afghanistan. But um, uh, the head of the mission, who was a Norwegian, and I disagreed, and uh, so I ended up being recalled. Uh, and then my last mm-hmm. uh, trend in uh, 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 event in public life was uh, to be in the Vermont State Senate. After Afghanistan, I, I ran for the Senate and wanted to be in an election where I knew there was a 100% relationship between votes cast and results announced. Uh, and I'll tell you, um, I did a lot better, at least um, as a percentage of the vote in Vermont than Hamid Karzai, the Afghanistan president, did as a percentage Ooh. of the vote, and I didn't have to cheat. So that, Ooh. I have also had a long involvement with the, with the Iraqi Kurds. Uh, uh, I'd helped them. Uh, uh, well, I, I uh, stumbled across the beginning of the Kurdish genocide in 1987 when I was with the Senate Foreign Relations yep. Committee, uh, uh, the systematic destruction of every village in Kurdistan during a trip to, to northern Iraq. And then in 1988, mm-hmm. with my 
junior colleague, uh, Chris Van Hollen, now the U.S. Senator from Maryland. We went along the entire Iraq-Turkey border uh, 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 interviewing the survivors of poison gas attacks and and documenting their use. We got the U.S. Senate to unanimously pass uh, sanctions on Iraq in 1988, sanctions that were opposed by Ronald Reagan and uh, the Reagan administration. They opposed even cutting off aid to Iraq when GATT when Saddam was gassing his own people, um, huh. and Colin Powell uh, called the approach too extreme, Dick Cheney opposed it. And of course, 15 years later, uh, the fact that Saddam had gassed the Kurds in 88 was a reason for war. Uh, and I was huh. there during the uprising in, against uh, Saddam in 1991, helped them negotiate their huh. de facto independence in, in, in the uh, Iraqi constitution in 2005. So, and I wrote a couple of books about Iraq. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, just a you know, just a few uh, things that you've done there. It's amazing. I actually, I'm, I love hearing that synopsis of your career. It just, it's so exciting to somebody who has spent a portion of their career in international development and um, had actually studied about quite a few of the things that you were that you were involved in in books and articles in my career you know especially my academic career my early academic career studying international relations um i also um just because folks who have you know i don't running for congress here in southwest florida and i think anywhere foreign policy doesn't end up being something you talk about a heck of a lot i always think it's really important though um, because of the way we have interconnections around the world and how the the relationship that the United States has to other countries and to supranational organizations matters for how our lives end up working in the United States a lot of times. And um, But unfortunately, like I said, most people don't vote on foreign policy. But I was very excited, too, because I get to share uh, – some of the the history that I have had. Now, I, of course, I am um, not had as many exalted positions as the ambassadors had, but I have had some interactions in some of the places that he has been. I also uh, did a small bit of research in East Timor, which is a, a really interesting country, especially if you look at if you're really into how you know, how do you set up a brand new country? It's a very fascinating case study. And, and, and the ambassador can tell us a little bit more about that as well. But I did a bit of research there and was not able to return because of security situations. But that was a fascinating thing. I actually, and I don't think I've told anybody of this in a, in a very, very long time, especially not in a public setting, but I applied for the foreign service and passed the test twice. <laughs> Um, and, uh, first right after out of college when I was 22 and, um, actually went to DC and missed the cutoff to get into the foreign service by three tenths of a point. And then again, I took it in Japan while I was getting my master's and then passed. And then that's when I was, I just never made it to the interview round because that's when, um, HW Bush put in or George W. Bush put in the, I don't know, there was like a secret panel that was in the middle there that reviewed your credentials. And I don't know if it was living abroad or what, but that uh, I never made it to the next round after I passed the test. So I have been uh, a very big fan of uh, this kind of work around the world and just its incredible importance uh, to the place in the United States as being somebody who's a champion for democracy and elections uh, as ambassador has already talked about as well. So let me throw a question back to you, Ambassador Galbraith. Tell me of all the experiences that you've had and the places that you've been and the things that you've been involved in, where do you think the United States was a good global leader? I'll give you a second to throw on that. I'll talk for a second more because I'm very interested or worried <laughs> in the way that we've kind of stepped back from our global leadership. So in what you've seen and what you've been involved in, where do you think the United States has been a good global leader? Well, uh, let me uh, first uh, say that, it, well, it's true that uh, you know, elections are often not decided on foreign policy issues, 
unless we're, we're at war. The Iraq war certainly was a case in point, mm. uh, and, and Vietnam. Um, uh, nonetheless, they're, they're really ex extremely important. Uh, and we're at the moment in a pandemic that is uh, keeping you from campaigning in the way I'm sure you would like. Uh, but uh, you know, th th this is not th this is a problem that has to be addressed globally. Uh, yeah. uh, in here, if for those of us who live in Southwest Florida, I live on Sanibel at an elevation of four feet. One of the other things we worry about is uh, uh, obviously global uh, warming. Uh, some people deny mm -hmm. it's taking place, but it is. Uh, mm -hmm. That uh, is going to have a very profound effect on uh, on our lives. Um, in fact, I think where where my home is, uh, uh, there's some the the um, um, the, uh, the the what is it the at uh, 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 NOAA uh, says that uh, the home home could be uh, underwater in 20 years. Uh, that the, the mm -hmm. waters would come up uh, to the uh, Sanibel Captiva Road. Uh, and, of course, this yep. will affect constituents uh, all throughout your district, not just on, on Sanibel. Mm -hmm. um, and, again, that can't be addressed by the United States alone. It has to be addressed uh, right. cooperatively. Uh, and, you know, that in turn, actually, uh, both on the pandemic and um, uh, uh, on, on global climate change, uh, is something where we need to cooperate with other countries, uh, uh, China as the of, of both of those issues. Uh, but it's also uh, mm -hmm. something where the Trump administration has uh, uh, taken America out of uh, any leadership role at all. We've withdrawn from the World Health yep. Organization, um, uh, which is just extraordinary thing to do in the middle of a pandemic when you're trying, <laughs> when many countries are trying to get a vaccine where we need to cooperate. Uh, and of course, uh, yep. we will. Uh, uh, just the, on November 4th, the day after the election, uh, withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. We will be the only country in the mm -hmm. entire world that is not a part of that uh, agreement to combat climate change. Now, I think we can all hope that the U.S. absence will be for about 87 days uh, before mm -hmm. President Biden comes in, as he's promised, uh, at 12.01 on January 20th, and to bring us back in. But still... That that's a sign of of, of America's absence. Now you asked me about w yep. when did when did things really work well? Well, I will say they worked incredibly well in the 1990s uh, in, in 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 the Balkans, where where I was deeply mm -hmm. involved. Um, at 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 that time, uh, it was uh, America was preeminent in the world. Uh, certainly, the Croatian president was not prepared to do anything uh, without our approval. Uh, and through our diplomacy, we were able to bring the war in Croatia to an end. Uh, uh, the, the Croatia peace agreement was, yep. was written in English, uh, actually by me, uh, signed by me. The <laughs> wow. Bosnia peace accords were written in English, uh, uh, although and negotiated in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, uh, hmm. The um, uh, and uh, and then we in 1999 we were. We, we, we were engaged, and he rejected uh, Milosevic uh, from Kosovo, where they were committing mass mm -hmm. murder against the Kosovo Albanians. Uh, and let me just say, when, when you had American leadership, uh, what was the cost? Well, it, basically, it was nothing in Croatia. Uh, I think the cost of implementing the Bosnia Agreement to mm -hmm. the U.S. Treasury was about $10 billion, and uh, maybe $20 billion in Kosovo. Um, and what were the cost in human lives? Well, none. Not a single American mm -hmm. or NATO military personnel died in uh, Bosnia, where we took military action to defeat the, uh, the Bosnian Serbs who had committed genocide. Not a single American or NATO soldier died in Kosovo. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and you just compare that to what's happened since the Iraq War, which has taken some 6,000 lives, uh, still uh, going mm -hmm. ongoing, uh, has cost at least two or three trillion dollars. We've spent over a trillion in Afghanistan, and we haven't had success in either place. So, you know, it was a very different time. And what are one of the features uh, of, of of that different time? Well, uh, when when you're a leader, you just don't give orders. You have to have followers. Uh -huh. you, you can be a leader, uh -huh. but you have to lead where people want to go. And at that time, 
we, we had allies uh, and we went in places they wanted us to go. In fact, they wanted us to be the leader because they weren't capable of it. Now, um, our allies uh, uh, view us with um, something between amusement, distress, or contempt. Uh, and so in many ways, the, the leader of the free world is not uh, Donald Trump because he, he has nobody who will follow him. Uh, it is uh, Angela Merkel in Germany and uh, Emmanuel Macron in France. Uh, uh -huh. uh, and a lot of other countries are just going their own way. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see Trudeau's trying to step in there a little bit as well. <laughs> uh, maybe he's hoping to, to, to take more of a prominent role globally as well. Just thinking about, I, you know, I would actually probably agree with you that globally, the leadership that the United States showed in the Balkans and, and the breakup of the, the former so, um, Yugoslav Republic was probably some of the best examples of what I fundamentally believe to be the right way for us to engage globally, which is to, you know, spot out, you know, genocide to help countries build and use diplomacy to, to find peace and then build and rebuild their, their nations and the image that's appropriate for them. When I think about it, and I'll ask you to reflect on this, when I think about it, the difference between the, the approach in the Balkans and the approach to Iraq and Afghanistan, I think it comes down to the neoconservative philosophy of regime change and quote nation building, even though I, I wouldn't call it nation building, but that's the way that a lot of uh, people had framed it. I think from the very beginning, the idea that we could just destroy a country's leadership structure, you know, slash and burn their government and then rebuild an American style democracy is what has kind of kept us marred in these forever conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. What, what do you think about that? Do you think that there was an initial difference in the approach and that may have, you know, separated, you know, relative successes uh, in the Balkans from the relatively unsuccessful endeavors in the Middle East? Well, you, 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 you provide a very good analysis uh, and I've given this a lot of thought. So I, to add to what you've said, I, I think one of the major differences is that in the, uh, in, in the case of Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo, uh, we intervened to do what a local partner wanted to do. We intervened in Bosnia yeah. uh, to support the government of Bosnia in its effort to, um, to survive. Uh, and we intervened in Kosovo to support the Kosovo Albanians in their effort to uh, uh, become independent. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a big difference between Afghanistan and Iraq. Our initial mm -hmm. intervention in Afghanistan was in support of a local partner, the Northern Alliance, which had been opposed to the Taliban all along. Uh, and we, we used uh, very limited resources, uh, air power, special forces on the ground, and we enabled the Northern Alliance to take Kabul and Kandahar, the second city. But then instead of leaving it to the Afghans to sort out, we decided that we needed to remake Afghanistan. Uh, and so we, uh, 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 we, we convened a conference in, in Bonn in Germany, uh, came up with a highly centralized constitution for Afghanistan, where uh, all power rested with the president, a very weak legislature or parliament, and all huh. decisions were centralized so that uh, basically every public official in Afghanistan works for the president. Well, <laughs> it's uh, considering that Afghanistan is geographically and ethnically one of the most diverse countries in the world, it didn't work. Uh, huh. Huh. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, as we tried to make Afghanistan to something that wasn't wanted by uh, by large groups of Afghans and had never been the situation there, um, of course, uh, we, we our investment kept getting bigger and bigger. Uh, and uh, one, you know, as things didn't work, instead of assessing the situation and cutting our losses, we simply poured more good money and and uh, more lives. Uh, uh, for, uh, you know, things that weren't working. Uh, mm -hmm. 
in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, of course, was was not a war of choice. So uh, uh, it, it it was something we had to do because uh, we you know the September 11th attacks originated in Afghanistan, but we could have uh, we we did deal with the threat from um, uh, Osama bin Laden, Al Qaeda, as well as the Taliban, and that was all taken care of by. Uh, December of 2001, and then we began huh. this uh, effort at nation building. In the case of huh. Iraq, of course, it was a a war of choice to deal with a huh. uh, a regime that was genocidal, and and I know this because I documented the the genocide. I was an eyewitness yeah. to it. Uh, but whether but it was not a threat to the United States. Um, hmm. uh, or its neighbors. It, it did not have weapons of mass destruction. I, I tell you, I certainly believed it, that, that uh, Saddam had chemical weapons because I had been a witness to their hmm. use. Uh, but it was obvious, but chemical weapons are an entirely different category than from nuclear weapons. Uh, chemical weapons are run of the mill right. World War I weapons. Uh, nuclear mm -hmm. weapons are, are, you know, well, we know what they are. Hmm. Uh, and uh, Yeah, we just celebrated the 75th. I was going to say, we just had the 75th uh, anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima this past week, too. Right. So, yeah, we, the right, right. the world has seen that. Um, and we can talk about the nuclear disarmament soon, too, because that's another thing that's on my radar as far as concerns. But um, yeah, but so so tell us but, uh, about just, Iraq a little bit just more. A, but, but just to, to – um, so, of course uh, – Nuclear weapons require large industrial facilities, and once you had the inspectors there, there were no way that that, that could take place. Uh, but we went in, and we decided that we would uh, create a country, or we, uh, we we thought that it was a country inhabited by people called the Iraqis. But, of course, it was really inhabited by Kurds, who are about 20%. I had never met a Kurd uh, who wanted to be an Iraqi, and that includes uh, the three Kurds who have been they all want an independent Kurdistan. Um, the president of Iraq since Saddam has always been a Kurd. Um, and uh, uh, the, the Sunnis and Shiites uh, shared a, a sense that they were Iraqi, but no shared sense of what, what that meant. And so you had a, a basically a continual state of war between these, uh, a civil war between these two uh, Arab communities. And yet we it kept insisting that we wanted a non-ethnic uh, country uh, that was going to be um, uh, democratic, run uh, on basis neoconservative principles and the like. And mm -hmm. we've invested trillions of dollars. And of course, uh, what we the, the country that has been the beneficiary of all that is Iran. Um, the political mm -hmm. parties that won in democratic elections in Iraq were Shiite religious parties. Um, one of which was actually founded in Tehran in 1982, and the other was um, uh, supported by Iran for decades. So, um, you know, you, you go back, you, you think, um, you recall George Bush's speech to the Congress in which he referred to an axis of evil of, huh. uh, uh, of Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. Well, that was uh, geometrically challenged because, as you know, an axis is between two points and not three. Um, but it was also historically challenged because the Berlin-Rome axis of the between Mussolini and Hitler uh, was an alliance, and and uh, Tehran and Baghdad were bitter enemies. But he actually created right. the Iraq War, created an alliance between Iran and Iraq, and indeed Iraq is Iran's closest ally in the world. Now the Iranians hmm. are perfectly happy to have the U.S. spending money to support their own ally. It spares them from having to do it, but. In terms of whether this was a good idea for the U.S. to make such an investment, uh, well, obviously it wasn't. Um, and so, you know, a more and, and you know, as a member of Congress, again, I, as you noted, I worked for 14 years for the Congress on foreign affairs. The Congress has an important role in foreign policy, um, mm -hmm. and particularly in being able to restrain executive, ill-advised executive actions. And so I think it, yep. it is, uh, uh, you know, people don't focus on foreign policy when, when we don't have a war, when the issue isn't Vietnam or the Iraq war. But what you really want and is in a member of Congress is somebody who is knowledgeable about uh, world affairs, uh, who recognizes that it's very important to 
the well-being of the people in their district as well as the country as a whole, and who is going mm -hmm. to be a for asking questions and a force for restraint. That you know, the Congress has the power of the purse, and that is yep. a, a force for restraint. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate that. And and so although I'm not explicitly running, I'm not explicitly running on a forum policy platform, I do bring those kind of credentials with me, having both an undergraduate and a master's degree in international relations and international public administration. I wanted to loop back to one thing that you said that was very interesting to me because it's very much related to my, let's call it my more localized work in community development. And that is this concept of nation building and identities and not nation building essentially, but community building and identities. Because when I look at, you know, some of the, the failures and the ability to kind of have uh, an independent state be strong and, you know, functioning and moving forward developmentally in Iraq, I think that that issue of the different ethnic groups and the fact that they do not identify as, Iraqis explicitly, um, and that there isn't that broader sense of community in the in the country is one of the things that probably has led them to the disjointed state that they are in. And I will bring that back to to where we are here, even in Southwest Florida, is that this is something that's very important in terms of being able to move forward together. And that's to have a shared understanding, a shared identity, and a shared set of goals um, to move forward as a country, as a city, as a town, however it is. And if you're not cultivating that, it's, it's not going to work. You cannot, I mean, it's not all fiat, right? Like it's not just, you can't develop it and it's there um, and just say, hey, we have a country and a democracy. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a process. And, you know, when I look at, like I said, when I look at Iraq, like you said, in particular, um, that seems to have been missing. Um, so I don't know if you, I mean, I, I just wanted to reply to that, but I mean, it seems to me that you had, pointed on that as to be one of the issues is if there's really no like national unity, national identity, you can't just force it to be created once you create a structure around the government. Well, well, that, that, that's exactly right. Uh, and I, I think uh, actually much of my career has been spent in countries that break up um, uh, the former Yugoslavia, uh, Iraq, mm -hmm. which has effectively broken up. Uh, East Timor, and, and actually Timor. I dealt a lot with the Soviet Union, you know, the Baltic uh, mm. the, uh, states as they became independent, uh, mm. uh, South Sudan. So there, there are a, a number of them. And, and here is the re one of the reasons that, that countries break up. It's a sense that, the, that there's a community in that country that feels it's not being treated fairly that the majority, mm. in some cases, the minority, is telling them what to do. So, you know, Croats and Slovenes didn't like being ordered around by, by, by Serbia, which was the dominant group in Yugoslavia. Kurds in Iraq, they're not mm. Arabs. Their language is uh, Indo-European language, not a Semitic language like Arabic. And mm. yet, uh, Iraq kept defining itself uh, as an Arab state. Well, if you're not an Arab, you know, and yet you, you, you know, the Kurds have been there even longer than the Arabs. What, what is the country? Um, right. And uh, I, I come back to uh, one of the things that worries me uh, in, in the United States is what, you know, what is going to happen if large chunks of Americans feel that they're being treated unfairly? Uh, that, for example, mm -hmm. we keep having elections where the loser and the popular vote becomes president because we have an electoral college system that was designed by people who owned slaves 240 years ago. Mm -hmm. Or the courts. I mean, nobody can seriously believe that the Supreme Court would have stopped the Florida recount in 2000 had Gore been ahead of Bush. Same mm -hmm. law, same facts, but different, you know, if the plaintiff and the defendant had been reversed. Well, that's a sense that people aren't being dealt fairly. And of course, this trend has been greatly magnified uh, in the in the Trump administration, where you know he, he mm -hmm. bluntly threats threatens to cut off uh, 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 funding to a state like California. We're not going to help them fight fires, where you know you have the elimination of the salt deduction that uh, states that uh, mm. uh, have uh, income tax use, and 
And and so you know, it, one of the things is uh, it, 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 that's really important is to keep that sense of cohesion, and again, to have a a, a, a Congress and a, and a member of Congress who's going to be mindful of that that we're an entire country and to be fair to everybody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And I think I've been pushing on that identity thing a lot in my work and my research over, you know, the past decade in that we, we overlook it. I, I think that we really overlook it a lot. We just think about the structural components, especially people in the wonky side of government. We just think, okay, we have to design this program or develop this system, but we forget the kind of the bringing the people along part, right? The influence and the, how do you cultivate that, you know, shared sense of identity and shared sense of purpose around people. And um, I really, I do think that that is an asset that I will bring to Congress is the kind of understanding that we need to do that. You cannot just slap together something and, you know, have people do it or force it on them to be done. Um, but let's, let's pivot here a little bit on this. I want, cause I want to hear a little bit more about um, some of your other thoughts and experiences. Um, some people who have listened to the podcast before know that I have been serving as a UN representative for an NGO, a non-governmental organization called the International Association for Community Development. Now, this is the civil society relationship to the United Nations is not, you know, we don't have a heck of a lot of power, but I really appreciate it because I think that we do need more avenues for people and not businesses or governments to be able to interact with policy. So it's one of the reasons why I took the role. And, um, you know, I did get to go to the General Assembly and try to participate in some events as well, especially one related to sustainable development and climate change. And in fact, I have aligned my policy platform to the sustainable development goals, which are the 17 global goals that are the biggest areas in our world that we need to address to basically survive, right? <laughs> They're all kind of systemically related to one another, related to climate change and environment and humanity and poverty and war and civility and all kind of wrapped up into one. And I think that they're really important for us to start working collaboratively at the global level. So Ambassador, if you could talk a little bit about um, maybe what's the value of this kind of multilateral engagement at the global level, what would be the value of the United States participating, especially as you had noted that, we, that we've that we been taking a step back because Donald Trump is feeding into these conspiracy theories about Agenda 21 taking over the world and the loss of U.S. sovereignty. But I'm working to try to combat that and say, no, we actually need to have a role for the United States and a seat at the table. And there is value in these international organizations. Can, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I, I don't think there's a, a loss of sovereignty. Uh, that's the issue. Uh, we, we live in an interdependent world. Um, uh, where if we, if we do not all uh, address the issue of climate change, uh, we are, you know, we in Southwest Florida are certainly going to suffer. We're going to be the, in fact, the people at the, at the front line of, of uh, losing uh, the places that we cherish because, you know, a four foot rise in sea level, which is entirely possible by the, uh, in, the in 20 years, uh, mm-hmm. uh, is going to submerge a lot of the places that we know and love and, and, and our homes. Uh, we, if you know, if we're going to travel internationally, uh, which, uh, you know, many, many people do, uh, uh, many of your constituents, you, you certainly want to have, uh, you, you, need, you need to have international organizations to handle uh, uh, air routes and uh, safety regulations and, and mm-hmm. to make sure that the pilots are able to communicate with control towers. Uh, mm-hmm. However, you may feel about the response to the global uh, pandemic. Uh, nonetheless, you you do want to be uh, have uh, notice of where uh, diseases break out, where Ebola breaks out, uh, mm-hmm. because it does make it easier to to deal with. Uh, and you know, I, I, we we simply could go on. Uh, 
we want to have uh, doctors with, with uh, uh, a certain level of qualifications. I mean, it, it, we want to have uh, pro copyright protections for our intellectual property. Mm. Uh, yeah. Now, none of these systems are perfect, uh, nor is right. uh, any of the systems in either the state of Florida or the United States as a, as a country. Mm -hmm. but, but, but they are, uh, they're, they're an essential feature of, of the world that we live in. And, and we certainly want to be active participants. Um, the United States is the largest contributor to international organizations, uh, but it's really a very small part of the budget. And the disaster for the United States would be if we stop participating, stop paying. It's not as if the World Health Organization is going to go away. It's going to be led mm. by the Chinese. And um, mm. is that really what we want to see? <laughs> Yes, and I think that that's a fantastic point. Um, I So I teach global studies at Florida Gulf Coast University, and I, I talk quite a lot about the international organizations and the UN system, um, global collaboration, wicked problems, these you know very complicated issues and how systemically organizations around the world are trying to address them. And um, one of the things that was, you know, I tell my students and talk quite a bit about that is always very surprising to the folks who are very oddly to me in this anti-international organization camp is that one of the largest criticisms globally of the United Nations has been the oversized influence that the United States has had in it, right? It was developed in the United States with um, Western European uh, values and Ambassador Galbraith, are you still there? Yes, I am. Oh, you are. So, okay, good. It looks like you dropped off for a second. But so it was the United Nations systems was developed post-World War II with Western European values. The United States has an oversized influence on it. Um, and I've actually worked with quite a lot of people who are in the UN system from other countries. A classmate of mine is the deputy ambassador to the United Nations uh, from Laos. Um, and so kind of seeing it from other world, other countries' perspectives, they're, they're usually, you know, somewhat annoyed sometimes that the United States has this outsized influence. And so as we have seen under Trump, the rollback of the global collaboration in the, the U.S. abdicating its seat at the table, the other countries around the world are they're, they're not upset about it. They're worried. Right? They're worried as to what's going to happen because there's kind of, even though the United States has sometimes been a thorn in the side, there, there had been some steady leadership components um, in addition to the funds, but, you know, some steady global leadership around it. And, you know, I think the whole rest of the world was like, okay, great. So now we don't have the problem of being dictated to by the United States, we can kind of maneuver a little bit differently within the system. Um, you know, which to me had always, you know, I, I just, I never quite understood why, why we would hand over that kind of level of power and influence. Um, I just think that sometimes people in the United States don't understand it and they don't understand or care about how that kind of plays into everything else in the world. Um, but if you don't mind, let's can we flip over to some uh, current events, right? I really love to have your insights on what's going on in Belarus, right? Um, within it, you know, it plays into your experience being somebody who has been a staunch supporter of open and free elections. So, can you tell me a little bit about what you think is going on, and you know, if there is any. Thing that the United States or people around the world should be concerned with as to what's going on in Belarus? Well, Belarus is the last uh, dictatorship in, in Europe. Uh, so, mm. and, and you know, we think about uh, the 20th century and the two world wars that came out of Europe, the half of Europe being communist, uh, to think that uh, the last dictatorship is confined to one, uh, one country. Uh, and I, I think uh, the days of the dictatorship there are, are, are numbered. Uh, Lukashenko is the longtime strongman. Uh, in, in the modern world, even if you're a dictator, you like to pretend that you have a, a democratic mandate, so you hold elections. Yeah. The trouble is if they're free and fair, 
you may not win. So he, uh, Lukashenko mm. took steps to make sure that he would win. Um, and uh, but these it, these it, it's pretty obvious when there's a a, a fraudulent election, a, at least a massively fraudulent election, and and. Uh, so people in Belarus are, are engaged in protests. They're rising up. I don't, and of course he also um, is hindered by uh, uh, his approach to COVID. He, Belarus did exactly nothing. Uh, he, he, you know, you might say uh, Lukashenko and uh, Ron DeSantis have a lot in common. Uh, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Um, at least in, in, in you know, in, in Donald Trump and, and pretending this wasn't a problem. Lukashenko went further than DeSantis yeah. and, uh, and, and Trump and, and the consequences in Belarus are disastrous as they have been in Florida. Um, so, you know, there is real anger. Uh, will he, will the repressive um, uh, machinery at his uh, fingertips be enough to put down this round of, of uh, protest? I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, that will play over in the coming weeks, but uh, for sure, uh, this is the uh, beginning of the end for him. Mm. Oh, okay. Well, let's look at it. And so I think that we're going to have to keep watching. Not my regional area of expertise, you know, like it is much more so yours. My, my regional area of expertise is East Asia. Um, so I could talk quite a lot about, you know, Japan and Korea. China and Taiwan like all day long, but you know I'm a little bit less uh, apprised of uh, the history in those areas. But I certainly appreciate hearing more about it from somebody who is an expert in that area, and you know, and an expert in elections. And I kind of um, I really hope that we don't have to uprise against Trump and DeSantis uh, if there are any election issues here in the United States. But I know that it's a concern for some people here for sure, and. You know, I think that in Southwest Florida in particular, we have been looking at this and trying to do our best to make sure that we have poll watchers and people who are lawyers who are making sure that the supervisors of elections are following procedure and protocol and, and you know, fighting for the fairness in that election. So, you know, I honestly feel pretty pretty well secure in saying that the elections here in Southwest Florida are going to be implemented well without malfeasance. Now we have had in the past technical problems under different leadership, but I think that we have a good balance of oversight that um, our elections will go off without a hitch. So let's see, well, what other, there's some other global issues. Oh, go ahead, respond to that. <laughs> no, I, I, you, you cited my experience with elections and I, and I think this is the, the, the key point. Uh, where you have, you know, retail problems, um, debating whether a, a hole was punched and, and, you know, was that the voters' intent, the famous hanging chads from 2000? Oh, the hanging chad, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, you know, with the elections incredibly close, as it was in Florida in 2000, yes, those sort of things can make a difference. But uh, the real issue is wholesale fraud. Uh, that took place in Afghanistan 2009, for example, where they simply reported results from polling centers that didn't actually exist. Nobody, nobody had voted. Hmm. But, uh, 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 and I think some of that's what's going on in, in, in uh, Belarus. Puerto Rico? Now, in the United States, oh. uh, you know, I think there are two things that could cause, pro cause problems in, um, in, in this coming November. Uh, first is if the electoral college system somehow produced a massively different result than than the popular vote. In other words, uh, uh, if wow. Trump were somehow in a you know very close elections to win the majority in the electoral college, even though say he loses the popular vote by five or ten million votes, I think that's going to be hard yeah. for people to stomach because it's such an obviously undemocratic result. And the second is if uh -huh. there's really massive uh, voter suppression. Uh, either by reducing the number of polling places, as took place in, as we saw, for example, in, in Georgia, in their recent primary, where people in, in, in urban areas, uh, including significantly uh, minorities, people of color, wait in mm -hmm. hours to vote uh, because the number of polling centers have been reduced from hundreds to dozens. Um, 
Or if, as Trump is threatening to do, he shuts down the postal service, which makes it uh, difficult or impossible for people to to uh, vote by um, uh, mail or by absentee vote. And that's certainly going to affect uh, mm -hmm. uh, us in Florida because, um, you know, we, we have a, a, the oldest population in the state. And there are a lot of people who mm -hmm. are not going to want to go out. And we have the oldest population in one of the worst uh, states for the pandemic, the one of the, yep. the, the worst managed states, uh, people aren't going to want to go out and vote. Uh, and so they'll mm -hmm. want to use the Postal Service. And if that's been destroyed, and, and almost looks like this is intentional, um, mm -hmm. boy, we're going to face a mess. And, 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 you know, and that could really shake our country to the core. It, you know, people may not feel yep. that our institutions uh, 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 work. And, and so it's going to be a challenge. And, of course, the, the best way to handle this is for people to, to you know, vote early, uh, and and to mm -hmm. you know for, for there to be decisive results, not not to have a a, a um, knife edge election as we've had in the past. Yeah, well, and that's that's a great that's a great place to for us to 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 wrap up our conversation today because I feel like I could talk to you about global issues you know for hours and hours on end, but I think it's with the primary election here coming up on August eighteenth, and we have had vote by mail going on for several weeks now. And I just calculated the turnout rate in, in Collier and County, Collier and Lee County. We are ahead in terms of um, Democrat and Republican turnout rates um, now with only vote by mail and about three days of early voting. We are ahead percentage wise in terms of the, the primary turnout during the 2016 election which is amazing. Um, and, you know, we had a higher turnout in 2018. There was a lot of people who were motivated to come out in the primary election there. But I think that we're even going to be ahead percentage-wise by, by the end of voting on August 15th and then the actual election day, August 18th. Uh, I think we're going to be upwards of 30% or more, um, which will be a really high turnout rate for us in the primary Um and, you know, it's it's going to be very interesting on that. And, and I think that you're you're right on in pointing out that there's a lot of ways that this election can be disrupted and that if there is some massive anomalies and especially when it seems like there was purposeful manipulation of that or maneuvering of things like the Postal Service to curtail the ability of people to participate in the elections that we're going to have some pretty negative consequences across the United States. Um, I tried to be an optimist, um, but I think that one of the things that's been a really important part of my campaign as well is to kind of talk about the importance of like general functionaries in our government. And as somebody who's worked in public administration and been on the technical side of government, I think that we, we over, you know, regular people overlook that sometimes, but just how complicated an election can be and how many little nicks and crannies and just administrative rules that you can put in to keep people from the process of participating. And I hope that we can continue the dialogue on that to, you know, to encourage more people to vote and to have freer and fairer elections in the United States. Um, but I just hope that there's, that this doesn't break us. I hope it doesn't break us. Well, I, I obviously I, I share your hope. Uh, and I, I think, uh, I hope people uh, get out and vote. I think the pandemic and the crash of the economy uh, it shows that elections really do have consequences. Uh, the fact that unemployed people in Florida can't get uh, unemployment assistance because uh, Rick Scott, as governor, deliberately sabotaged the system, um, yep. and Ron DeSantis didn't didn't fix it. Uh, you know, there, there are uh, there there are consequences to elections. So I, I hope there'll be a very large turnout, uh, and uh, I've certainly enjoyed speaking to you. Uh, uh, you have a, a kind of well-informed global perspective, I mean both global uh, for the world and global in the sense of our state and, and community that is needed in Congress. 
Well, I, I certainly appreciate that, um, that, you know, words of confidence. I, I, I think that that's what I bring to the table as a congressional candidate, both the connections to our community and the global sense and the understanding of how our government works. And I really do think we need it now more than ever. We cannot afford to have any more people who are buying seats in Congress or who are coming into Congress with absolutely no understanding of our government and our global systems and devaluing them and then just working for their own political and power purposes. I think that is going to be the worst possible situation for us. And so I can't, I think our guests may have dropped off, but um, Ambassador Galbraith, thank you so much uh, for being here with us today. I've certainly appreciated this conversation and, uh, you know, the vote of confidence from somebody who has been as experienced as you are. Well, you're very kind and all the best. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for joining us here on Dr. Cindy Speaks. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to cindybenye.com or connect with her directly at vote at cindybenye.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved by friends of Sandy Benye. 